The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. So we've been in the study of the book of 1 Peter now for a number of weeks. And I've got to tell you, as I've gone through the, the book of 1 Peter, especially after going through his life and seeing how God worked in Peter's life to make him the man that he became. It's been convicting for me. Because over and over again, I've seen the truth of the privilege that I have in being a child of God. Over and over again, I've seen how good our Heavenly Father has been to us, to me. And I've seen, because of that, I have this awesome responsibility to live for him. I have this responsibility to to expend my entire life for his glory and not for my own. And that is is so much more than we're used to be, or that that many people expect to be called for in a church. We often expect that what God is going to call us to is going to be something that's going to be relatively easy for us. You know, God is a good God. God wants good for my life, and so he's going to let me have lots of fun. And sometimes, maybe on a, on a Sunday morning, a Sunday night, I'll have to go worship him. And maybe every once in a while, throughout the week, I'll get called upon to serve him additionally. But that's basically the extent of what I expect God to do with me. And that's just not what we see at all. We see God saying, you're going to go through suffering, and I want you to praise me through it. We see God saying, you're my child, and I expect you to represent me every day of your life before the people you encounter that this is a full-time gig that we have as Christians. It's a full-time privilege and a full-time responsibility. And so as we get into the text this evening, I think Peter is going to once again challenge us in these areas. So we'll start our reading in 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll read the verses, some of the verses from last week, beginning in verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 4. Peter writes, To whom coming, as unto a living stone... Disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient. The stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Peter lays out in these five verses a wonderful analogy for us. He introduces Christ as the living stone that was rejected by men, but chosen by God and infinitely precious. He introduces those who believe on the chief cornerstone as living stones, who will have no reason to fear or to hurry on Judgment Day. And he introduces the disobedient builders as those, when building their house, found Christ offensive and have rejected him. And here we get this, in this this analogy, a microcosm of all religion, of all people, who either build their lives upon their own foundation, upon their own cornerstone, and reject the cornerstone of Christ, and ultimately say, I have this thing figured out, I will get to heaven on my own merits. And then you have those 
who, who accept the cornerstone, who say, I need, and see their need of Christ, and they build their lives on the chief cornerstone, and not because they are better stones, not because they've built a better house, but simply because they're built on the foundation of Christ, that on judgment day, day they will be safe. Here is an analogy for our lives. Peter is essentially reminding Christians of the privilege they have to know the living cornerstone and to have been brought back to life as living stones in the family of God. But, as we know, as we read scripture, there is always a therefore. If you read the Bible and you're given many wonderful truths, what you know is going to be coming is, therefore. This is what we must do about it. And so Peter gets into what we must do as a result of the fact that we are living stones in the family of God. In verse number 9, it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter wants to be clear that they understand that because of the chief cornerstone, because they know the chief cornerstone, and now they're living stones, they are a privileged people. And he uses very familiar Old Testament language to describe who they are now. Because in the Old Testament, these were a lot of the words that were used to describe who Israel was, God's chosen people. He says, you're a chosen generation. You're a chosen group. God has chosen you. You're a royal priesthood. You now have the ability to access God directly, to go to the throne of God in the merits of Jesus Christ. I mean, think of that for a moment. Back so long ago, they they had to go to a priest once a year who could go to God. and, And now we have a high priest who allows us to go to the throne of the Creator. We are a high priest. Priests went to God on their throne, to, the, to God's throne, not only on their own behalf, but they went on the behalf of others as well. So I think some of what he's saying here with the, this idea of being a royal priesthood is, yes, we go to God in our, uh, because now we can. We can go directly to him. But there's also a responsibility we have for others. And we'll see that as we go along. We are a holy nation. We are a nation that should be marked by kingdom living. Here, it's almost like this this idea that, that every church, every local assembly, is an embassy of God here on earth. That's how it should act. That, that here within the church, God is our king. And we answer to him. And we are his people. And we leave this place as ambassadors for Christ. And so we are now a holy nation. Not the exact same way Israel was, where they had their own land and their own their own government. We are a holy nation in that we are God's people put here on earth, but citizens of heaven called to do our king's bidding. We are a peculiar people. The word peculiar has two definitions. The first one is that we are strange, odd, or unusual. I remember as a teenager hearing a sermon, and it's, it's funny the things you remember, but this was, I very specifically remember this sermon, and it was titled, You're a Weirdo, Not a Loser. I was like, do I have to choose? Do I have to choose between being a weirdo or a loser? Right? They're taking that first definition of peculiar and saying, yeah, 
Christians are kind of strange. You know, we're a little weird. Um, But I don't think that's what this text is saying at all. Because the second definition of peculiar means belonging exclusively to. We belong exclusively to God. We are a peculiar people, a people belonging exclusively to God. If we were to describe, if we took a, a bottle of medicine and say, what in this medicine is peculiar to this medicine, what we would be asking is, what is specific to this medicine that isn't found in other drugs? What does this drug have that not everything else has? What is peculiar to this? And, and what it's saying here is, we are a peculiar people, a people that belong exclusively to God, to no one else, to nothing else. And the only place you find these people that it belong exclusively to God is in the church, is in the family of God. That is us. God has chosen them to be his people, established them as royal priesthood, appointed them as a holy nation to be his special possession so that they would show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see with that awesome privilege of being the people of the creator, of having him as our God and being his people, the responsibility is now we go out and we show forth his praises. He has called us out of darkness. When we were blind, he's called us out. Now we see and now we show forth to others his marvelous light. We declare and proclaim the greatness of God. Uh, Charles Wesley put it this way. He said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. Do you know what? Charles Wesley didn't even know he was in a dungeon before. It was darkness. He didn't see what he was going through before. And then all of a sudden he can see and the dungeon's flame with light. And he says, my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. This is what we do. We've, we've been taken out of darkness. We've seen the marvelous light. And now we go and we show forth, we declare, we proclaim his greatness. Verse number 10. Which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Peter says, look from where you came. You had nothing. You were nothing. You were going nowhere, and you were destined to eternal destruction. This is the plight of mankind without God. And now you are the people of God. What a privilege. Now you have this brand new identity. Now you have mercy when you once had none. Verse number 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Peter says, I love you so much, I have to tell you something. So please listen to what I'm about to ask of you. You are citizens of heaven now. The king is your father, and you have been made heirs to his inheritance. Now I beg you, now I plead with you, as children of God, stop pursuing the sin that can only destroy you. The idea of what fleshly lust is, right? Pastor talked about that this morning. We are born sinners. We are by nature sinners. What does that mean? 
It means if I didn't stop myself from doing evil, I would be constantly doing it. Right? It means that all of us are bent this way. It's funny how we convince ourselves that we're, we're such good people. Do you, do you know that when you do an evil act, all that is is the evil in your heart bubbling over? Like, it didn't just happen out of the blue. There are so many evil things that we think that we don't do, right? And so we are these evil and wicked and awful people. And now he says, you are something different. You are now citizens of heaven. You are now children of God. And so stop pursuing the fleshly lusts which are warring against your soul. They're killing you. They're trying to destroy you. Once they imprison you, now you've been free from that. Don't run back to it. Why would we go back to the dungeon prison cell that we were once at? How crazy. And yet, we still have the flesh that is constantly pulling us back there. Constantly dragging us back into our old patterns and our old habits and in the sins that we struggle with. That's, I mean, the Bible talks so much about us having besetting sins. We have those things in our lives that are just hard to get over. And so what do we do? We constantly remind ourselves that we are strangers and pilgrims on this earth. That now this world, it's not our home. That this world is, is a place that we are here for a short time. Our life is a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And so rather than living for this life and this world and what we can accumulate and what we can accomplish and what we can experience here, we live for eternity. Because we know that that's where our citizenship lies. If we really believe this, if we believe that this 70, 80 year life was just a speck on our lifespan of eternity, that this was just the beginning, wouldn't it be so much easier for us to say, yeah, I'll do whatever I need to for these 70 years to please the one who's given me the the eternity? We have eternity, an eternal home in heaven with the creator who has called us And now he's asked us a duty. And one of the things that we must do is learn to say no to our flesh. It's a tough thing, but we must do it as children of God. I picture here a homeless man who is living day to day off scraps of food that he's always cold and he's always searching for something better. Something that will provide a little bit of comfort. And this is who we are without Christ. Just searching and searching to find something to provide us some comfort. And one day, he is adopted by a wealthy king, given a bath, given a royal robe, set a feast for him, given a royal title, given everything he never had, he never earned. And the king says, now you are my son and a citizen of this land. And what does a homeless man do? He says, thank you. And then he heads back to his cardboard box. He heads back to his scraps of food, just searching for the thing that's never going to fulfill. There is so much more than scraps available to us. We must realize that that the lies that the world tell us all the time are just that. They're lies. They don't fulfill. We know better. You know you've pursued sin in the past, and it's never brought the satisfaction it promised. So why do we keep going back to it? The cardboard is going to get cold and wet and destroyed before you know it. Why not stay in the king's castle? Verse number 12. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, 
that whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Your conversation here is your lifestyle or your behavior. And so he says, having your lifestyle honest. The word honest is found 91 times in the New Testament, and it's usually translated either good or goodly, which means beautiful. So the idea is that we have this life that is a beautiful and good life before the Gentiles. What is a beautiful lifestyle? Well, what is it not? Do you know what a beautiful lifestyle is not? It's not being a Christian on Sunday and nowhere else. It's not being a Christian in front of your peers here and not in front of your family at home. A goodly, a beautiful lifestyle, it's not, it's not being a hypocritical Christian. It's not acting as though we believe things that we don't really practice. Being a Christian is, is saying, this is what I believe, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live my life for it. Here's my Savior. I'm going to live my life for him. Unbelievers will mock the people of God. They will bring charges against us. Peter expects that to happen. But some of them are watching. And some of them will see how we respond. They will see our families and our marriages and our children and our relationships here. They will see how we treat one another. They will see how we treat those around us, even our enemies. The world, as much as they might mock the church, they are watching. They should see our life. They should see our faith lived out sincerely, with simplicity, with honesty, with integrity. Because if they see that, if they see the Christian life lived the way it's meant to live, then they will be drawn to it. You must be. Because it is a beautiful thing. One day, perhaps, that mocking unbeliever will repent and turn to God and stand you in glory, glorifying God together with you. What a thought. You think about your worst enemy. How wonderful would it be for someday to stand in heaven beside him glorifying Christ? When I thought about this picture, I thought, think about the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross begins with mocking Christ. I mean, joining in with everybody else and making fun of Christ. And as he's standing there, he watches Christ. And I, I mean, really, we, we have seven things that Jesus said while he was on the cross. I'm not sure what it was that he saw in Christ specifically. Okay? I know that he looked at Christ. He looked at the way he spoke, the way he acted. He looked at his, his humility, his innocence, and he was drawn to it. And by, by the end, he's saying, God, when you remember, remember me this day when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says he will. What a a flip from mocking to, I need you. Be my savior. I want to go to heaven someday. And that's where the thief gets. You know what? That can happen. People that mock Christianity may someday become Christians. And you know what that depends on? Partially it depends on, what are we doing? Are we living out our lives the way we're supposed to before them? Before we conclude, I want to give you three, three points tonight, three points of application. We have here, I think, in, I was telling Stacy before I got up here, this is like one of the easiest um, sermons to outline ever. 
Because there's three points that just jump off the page. There is the privilege, the purpose, and the plan. And so the privilege. Our privilege is we are the people of God. Turn in the Old Testament to the book of Hosea, chapter 2. If you know the story of Hosea, it's a fascinating story where God comes to his prophet and he commands his prophet to marry a prostitute. So he says, I want you to take a prostitute, marry her, make her your wife. And so he marries a, a woman named Gomer. And she wound up having many children with other men. And he cares for her well. He is a good husband to her, and yet she consistently leaves him to run back to her old life, to run back to being a prostitute, to being treated poorly, to being sold as a slave. And so what Hosea does is he goes to his wife, he finds her, and he buys her back once again and and reinstates her in the position of his wife. What what an incredible story. And it's a shocking story because it it puts a face on the way that the people of God often treat him. Right? We, we see that story and we think of it in human terms where you have this wonderful husband, this faithful husband, and this wife who just can't see what she has. So clearly, I mean, she's got this wonderful husband who loves her and is faithful to her, and she keeps running back to those that, that hate her and are destroying her. And yet she keeps doing it. And God is using this to show what Israel is like what his people is like, that they're constantly running to false gods rather than being faithful to him. Hosea chapter 2 describes how God will treat his people. It says, And I will visit upon her the days of Balaam, where she burned incense to them, and she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers and forgot me, saith the Lord. So he says, I'm going to go after them, after her. I'm going to visit her. Immediately we think, oh man, God's going to give it to her. He's going to, he's going to lay down the law here. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably or tenderly unto her. And I will give her her vineyards from thence in the valley of Achor for an a door of hope, and she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Isha, and shalt call me no more Bailey. Do you get what he's saying there? That she's gone off, and she's run to her other lovers, and she's run to her false gods to worship her false gods. And I'm going to call her back. I'm going to allure her. I'm going to speak tenderly and kindly to her. I'm going to give her this hope back. I'm going to make her mine again. And then he says, she is going to call me Isha and not Bailey. Isha means husband rather than Bailey, which is Lord. In other words, I'm going to make her my bride rather than just having her as my slave, as my servant. I'm going to have her call me husband. You take a woman like that? And you treat her so kindly? What's that all about? Look at verse 23. And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which are not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. 
it's pretty easy to see as we tell this story who we are in it, isn't it? We're, we're Gomer. We're the ones that, that, that leave, that have gone to worship other gods. We're the ones that have been wooed by God, have been given hope, have been called the bride of Christ collectively. We're the ones who God has given himself for. I will say unto them which were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. What a privilege. What an honor. We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, a people belonging exclusively to the God who redeemed us. Our privilege is we are the people of God. We would do well not to forget that. Now we have a new purpose in our lives. Our purpose is to proclaim his praises. God's people are to be excited about God. It sounds kind of crazy, right? Especially to some of us who are, are used to coming to church and falling asleep. Um, <laughs> not that anybody's doing that now. Um, not most of you. <laughs> Shouldn't we be excited about God? I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to condemn any of you. I've done it before. Um, <laughs> But really, I mean, when we actually step back from, like, what we're used to, maybe some of the normal routines of religion, of going to church, and we start to think about this scenario where the God of creation dies and buys back a people and we are one of them, should not that excite us? Yes, it should. We should be in awe every day of what God has done for us. God's people should be excited about God, should be awed by God every single day. And we should show forth or proclaim or make known or announce or declare or broadcast his greatness, his excellencies. He is an awesome God. We are so quick to tell everybody what team we cheer for, who our favorite hockey team is. We're so proud when the Canadian Olympic team wins in hockey. I know I am. We have a God who is so awesome. We can't begin to describe his greatness. And we kind of treat it as church people do. Hmm, ho-hum. That's great. No, Glad that's true. Now what else is going on this week? It's just a sad thing. This life should be about proclaiming forth his greatness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. It starts with him making us his people, and then he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Do you see how our reconciliation now demands that we be 
people who go out and share the reconciliation of God with others. That we are now ambassadors of Christ. That the reconciled become ambassadors. Representatives of a king or of a nation. This designation fits perfectly with what Peter is calling us to do. As ambassadors of Christ. We are the people of God. We have received the undeserved mercy of God. We have been granted all of the privileges due God's children. We have a future inheritance to look forward to. We are strangers in the land that we're now in. We have local churches that act as embassies here. And we are his ambassadors. And what are we to do? We were to, are to take the light and proclaim it in the darkness. That's what we do. We were once there. We were once children of the darkness. Now we've been called to his marvelous light. Now we go out and call others. Show them the light. And so here is now the plan. The privilege is we are God's children. The purpose is that we show forth his praises. And the plan is that we be a light for the darkness. It's interesting here in 1 Peter 2, the plan focuses more on our actions than our words. And I'm not diminishing the importance of words. Words are essential in the gospel. You cannot give the gospel with your actions. But Peter is trying to call them to more than just evangelism. He's calling them to discipleship. Evangelism with no discipleship is like a drunkard singing the praises of sobriety. We are disciples. And we have a, we've been transformed. And now we take our transformed life along with the message that transformed us, and it's powerful. So when the accusations are leveled at us, when the darkness says to the light, well, you are such and such, which will happen, they will find a life that, tr- that is transformed and shouts that the gospel is true. When they seek to belittle us and to mock us, they will find in us courage and humility that can only come from God. We respond differently than they expect. I hate it when you look at the news and you see a Christian responding in an unchristlike manner. It just frustrates me because I know that the news, they want to blow it up. They want to like shed light on the Christian that's acting so poorly and they act as though this is how Christians are supposed to act. With our lives, we have to prove that differently. We have to go into our workplace and say, no, this is actually how a Christian is supposed to live. We are supposed to be humble. We're supposed to be courageous. We're supposed to be willing to be mocked. We're not supposed to be unkind for no reason, but we're supposed to speak truth. Truth in love. When they accuse you of wrongdoing, they should hear only testimonies of your good character. When they besmirch the name of your family, they should find that you have a wife that loves you and, that, and children that respect you. Put that in whatever scenario you're in. If you're a teenager, your friends should not be able to tell me all of the things that you really are like. Right? Your friends should say, yeah, the person lives out their faith. When that happens, I tell you, people do take notice. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. For you were sometimes in darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and in truth. He says walk in light, and then connected directly with that is 
we have the fruit, we should have the fruit of the Spirit. As we walk in the light, we walk by the Spirit, then the Spirit, God's power, works in and through us. And so the light comes out. Verse number 10, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. Our lives should prove, should demonstrate what is acceptable to the Lord. Verse 11, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. The idea there is not to never speak to sinful people. The idea is don't ever take part in what they're doing. You should be with your lives exposing what they're doing is wrong rather than being a part of it. And it's unfortunate, again, that we have far too many Christians that they see their lives as just, yeah, I'm going to do all the things that the world does, and I'm going to claim the name of Christ. That's just not, those two things don't correspond to each other. They don't fit together. We're a holy people, a holy nation, a, a people called out by God to be separate. Christians, can I remind you tonight that you don't live your life in a painted bubble? We want to, right? We want to be able to have this bubble around us where nothing really affects us in the world. And the painted part I kind of just added because I've heard the bubble part before. But I thought, yeah, we we actually kind of want it so that we can't really see all the evil that's going on out in the world and that they can't really look in on us. We, We want this, like, separation where we're just, we're not with them. We're not feeling the effects of sin. We're, we're kind of living this wonderful Christian life in our minds and in our church and never having to go out into the world around us. That's not God's plan for us. God's plan is that we go out and that ultimately people behold our good works. That people see that we're transformed. We need to be engaging. Philippians 2 verse 15 says that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. And that's what we're called to do. The world around us, not to get entangled with the sin, but to be a light. Biblical Christianity is not for the faint at heart. Biblical Christianity is is not a hobby, it's not a club, it's not a part-time job. It is a call to lose our lives and to bear a cross. If you are not doing that, you are missing out. Because that is the only way that a Christian can live and be truly joyful. That's the way that our Creator has created us to live. Christ calls us very bluntly. If you want to be my disciples, then lose your life. So I think it's about time that us as his disciples assess our lives and say, how am I doing? Have I been losing my life for the cause of Christ? Have I been living my life to show forth his his praises? Can I say that I'm really light in a dark world? Or have I been kind of trying to hide that light a little bit? Trying to muffle it just so I don't stand out too much? We are the people of God. Our purpose is to proclaim his praises. And we accomplish this by being lights in the darkness. Let's pray.